I'm going to read this morning's sermon text from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. No, not all of you are alive in the late 90s. Um, but if you were alive and you were paying attention, if you're old enough to pay attention and you were paying attention, there were these bracelets that some people wore that said WWJD. Anybody remember? I, it's possible they've even made a little bit of a comeback. Uh, it stood for What Would Jesus Do? And it started as an insider thing, like for people who were Christians, to whatever they were doing, look at their bracelet and see WWJD. What would Jesus do? What am I doing and does it look like anything that Jesus would be doing? But it, it ended up becoming, I think it's safe to say, as much of an outsider thing. So the culture picked up on it. They saw all these WWJD bracelets around. I think they made fun of it on South Park. And definitely the, uh, like the late night talk show hosts, guys. So, I mean, whether they were making fun of it or not, and certainly not everybody did, it was, like, it was a signal. It became a signal. I'm a Christian, and I'm trying, trying not to hide it. Um, this is a passage where a lawyer comes to Jesus and literally asks, Jesus, what do I do? Is, is a what would Jesus do passage? He is clearly at least wrestling with some other motives. Because the way Luke records it, it says he came to Jesus testing him. He tested Jesus. Like, in public, let me prod Jesus a little bit to see if he maybe says something That'll out him as, I don't know, maybe a heretic relative to contemporary, contemporary interpretations of Jew, Jewish law. So he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I do? What do I do to inherit eternal life is the tag, though. Jesus says, you tell me. He, he actually says, lawyer, what's in your law? Oh, he's a lawyer, a, a, a Jewish lawyer an expert in the law of Moses. And the lawyer gives a good answer. He says, well, you should love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This, by the way, is for sure the what would Jesus do line 
for ancient Jews. In fact, they had swag for this line from Deuteronomy 6. It came to be known as the Shema, and it was supposed to be like kind of a mantra for the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you know the book of Deuteronomy, it even says, actually write this down and put it on your person. Like mark your body with this phrase. It looked like, oh, what would Jesus do bracelet? Um, on your doorposts, in your, on your gates, in your coming and going. This is so central to everything. Uh, don't only not forget it. Have it in front of you all the time. And in Jesus' day, it was supplemented, worked out uh, with this additional phrase from Leviticus 19. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. As an outworking of loving God. And Jesus actually, this is very interesting in terms of how we think about salvation, I think. Jesus completely affirms that answer, if you saw. Jesus says, you have answered correctly in verse 28. Do this and you will live. And the question was about eternal life, remember or life unto the ages, however that lawyer understood it. I want you to hear that this is true. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, and you will live eternally. Jesus says so in Luke 10. Great. Got it. Awesome. Who needs the bracelet? Except, except, the rest of this passage is Jesus showing this man that he has absolutely no idea what that actually means. And that's where we're going. We're in a series, we're really wrapping up a series on the mission statement of this church, which is to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus. And this is serve. This is, you know, the end of that phrase. And in this parable, Jesus speaks to the actions of our service. What would Jesus have us do? I mean, at serving as the very presence of Jesus. This is a what would Jesus do sermon. And Jesus speaks to the actions of our service here. But here's the thing about Jesus, and you know this if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't Jesus always as interested if not more interested in the motivation of somebody who serves him. This is a passage where Jesus doesn't patronize the guy. He speaks clearly. But as soon as he speaks clearly, he goes after his heart. Do you really think you love in a way that will lead you before the presence of God in eternity? Let me tell you a story. And so two aspects of the story. Uh, actions and motivation. Or think of, think of it this way. If you think about... you. If you want to leave this place actually wanting to serve Jesus in a way that will be acceptable to him, there's two aspects of it. There's the hands. Bracelet, okay, I'm going to do something now. What would Jesus have me do? And then there's the heart. And there's really not a bracelet for that. I'm, I'm actually for the bracelet. Let's bring it back. You know, I'm, I'm a hidden Christian most of the time. I'm a secret Christian. I don't wear a collar as a pastor. Like, I... Uh, maybe I should, um, but I, I don't, and, and most people don't even know. The actions and the motivation, the hands and the heart, I mean, you, you name the points however you want, you get the point. First, the part you can see, the actions, the hands part, the actions of our service. 
The man, after he finds out he gets it right from Jesus, he says, okay, fine, okay, if I'm right, then tell me, it says, seeking to justify himself in verse 29, who's my neighbor? Just to make sure I really, really check that box so I never have to worry about it again. Who's my neighbor? And in response, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Verse 30 through 32, I'll reread a few verses. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, uh, saw him passed by on the other side. Okay, so a priest and a Levi uh, see this man half dead on the side of the road, cross the road, and ignore him. Uh, a priest represents the height of piety in the Jewish faith. So if anybody's supposed to know this line, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, it's, it's the priest. Passes by on the other side. The Levite is someone who, uh, not unlike the deacon in relationship to the elder office in the New Covenant, um, did a lot of the uh, material work around the worship service and also was usually in charge of uh, handling the alms, the offerings. When people gave money for the relief of the poor, for those who were lying in a ditch on the side of the road, for example, that was the Levite's job. Levite passes by on the other side of the street and has other stuff to do. There's actually a lot of reasons that have been suggested as to why these religious men ignored the half-dead man. There's some ritual uh, purity stuff. Uh, if you're in the temple, serving in the temple, you're not supposed to have encountered a half-dead or dead body. Um, the problem with that, though, is they're heading away from the temple. They're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Also, I mean, how many phrases are in the Jewish law about relief of the poor and the needy? I mean, we don't know what the reasons are. We do know whatever they are, they're, not, they're really not good enough. In, in the world of the parable that Jesus is telling. They're not good enough. I'd like us, just to make sure we're not thumbing our nose at these guys, take a moment and use your imagination. Because you and I do this all the time. We pass by people who are on the road. We live in Philadelphia. It happens every day. I would like us to, to just take a moment and think about not the reasons like, oh, they just didn't care. They were totally calloused. They actually just don't care about people in desperate situations. That's not, that's not good enough. That's not going to get you to the heart of the parable. It's too easy. And I don't think it was them, frankly. Think about your good reasons, and you have some, for not stopping for those who are in the side of your roads. Here's a few. I stopped the last five times and helped. And even if it helped a little bit, most of the time they were still there the next day. Um, I helped before, and I think I got used a little. I got taken advantage of. Um, sometimes I see somebody on the side of the road, and Philadelphia can be a violent city. Like, what's happening to me in a certain part of town while I'm focused on helping this person on the side of the road? By the way, I've got people waiting for me at home. I have people 
who I have responsibility for? Do I not have a greater responsibility for people who I'm maybe, say, in like some kind of family covenant with, married to, my children, to come home safely to them? Jesus, why aren't any of these nuances in your parable? I'll tell you what, I am not, I am not going to relieve you or myself from the hard work of prayer and soul-searching that this parable demands. Jesus, why aren't those nuances in there? Because that's reality. Meanwhile, the man is still there, though. And that's reality, too. They're still on the streets with our good reasons. I just want to take a second and give you some of the realities in Philadelphia. These are some of the statistics. You know them. Maybe you don't. You know some of them, I'm sure. In terms of household income, 23% of two-person families in Philadelphia make $18,000 a year. It's a quarter of people in our city. Philadelphia is the poorest of the 10 largest cities in the country per capita. Homeless stats, 4,302 people as of the stats taken a couple months ago, 4,302 people are experiencing homelessness in Philadelphia. Many more live in places not fit for human habitation. Labor rate, people who work for 7.25 an hour have to work 94 hours a week in order to afford a one-bedroom apartment. That's if they're on their own. So only breadwinners in the household. Average one-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia, $882. Average two-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia, $1,153. Food security rate. Food security refers to households without access to enough food for a healthy life. 15.8% of people are food insecure in Philadelphia. It's a very real problem. 30.9% or 106,000 of them, 106,000 of them are children. And there's more. And that's where we are. And these are our streets. And it all leads up to the Samaritan. Let me read verse 33 and following. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where the man on the side of the road was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Let me just quickly point out all of the ways I can see that the Samaritan actually helps this man. Six ways I can count that the Samaritan actually helps this man. He went to him, so he didn't cross over, so there's a tension. He bound the man's wounds. Um, I didn't mention one reason you might not stop for somebody half dead on the side of the road is literally getting their blood on your hands, which is a thing that is not awesome. Literally went to him, bound his wounds. Anointed him with oil and wine. So there's some immediate comfort. Uh, the idea is, so I've read, I, you know, so I've read, this is not my idea, but uh, the idea is that oil soothes, wine disinfects, you still put alcohol on wounds if you want to disinfect them. Doctors can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, also, he loaded the man on his own animal. 
took him to an inn and then provided ongoing care and comfort. Uh, this man's inventory was put to use. Let me make a little bit of a plug for our own inventory. I announced uh, at our congregational meeting last month that you know, we recently, through communication with the people we were serving, chose to close down a food pantry that we opened during the pandemic with Urban Worship Center and West Kensington Ministry. And the reason it was closed down is through a lot of the good work of the key volunteers that shared, 80% uh, of them said, since the pandemic has waned a little bit, released some of its severity, let's say, a lot of the other old pan food pantry uh, offerings are now open again, and this isn't the door-to-door -door need it once was. So in closing down that ministry, this is a season where we're asking, how else would God have us serve? What's in our inventory? And I do not do this often. But if you're in any meaningful way connected to this church, if you're a, a, a visitor and this is your first time and you're pretty sure you're never going to be back, uh, we hope you come back, but no pressure. But if you're in any way really connected here, we need you to fill this out. Why? Not because we want to just put you to work, but because we actually want to know what we're stewarding here. What are our riches? And how exactly might that meet the need of those that we're encountering in Philadelphia in 2023. This is very important. The link to that electronic inventory is in every weekly email. If you're not on that list, the back of the bulletin will show you how, or you can just come talk to me. Uh, and we're gonna keep that open for a few weeks, but I really wanna invite you to do that. Our deacons in training are gonna put that information to good work in the weeks and months ahead. So, end of plug. But here's the thing. The emphasis of the Samaritan is very much on what he has and what he gives to this man who's half dead on the side of the road. But the emphasis is, is more on his identity. It certainly would have been to Luke's original readers. If you know the scriptures, and we looked at this last fall when Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritans were at odds with the Jews. Jews offensively, thought of Samaritans as ethnic and religious half-breeds. They'd started out with the same roots historically and then diverged from the faith. The point is that, and get this, this is really key to the whole parable. The helping one, the Samaritan, was hated by the one being helped. The helping one was hated by the one being helped. And there were these hostile social and ethnic distances that were bridged. Folks, I got to tell you, as we're in this season, thinking about what it means to have been part of a church planning communion for 20 years and looking at the years ahead, I think this is another place to slow down and apply something. When we look at the, the bridge here, I don't know if you knew this, probably some of you have no idea about this, but when Liberty was planted, there was a targeted population we were trying to reach. State, we said so in the paperwork that we were sharing with people as the church was getting planted. And this was modeled after other church plants in major cities that realized there was a great opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus among college-educated young adults who worked in business or academic contexts that faced center city hubs. College-educated, young, center city-facing, whether they lived in center city or not, young urban professionals 
That was the targeted population. There was a phrase describing Philadelphia, I don't know if any of you have heard this, 10, 15 years ago, and this might still be the case, that Philadelphia is 25% Manhattan and 75% Detroit. No offense to Detroit. I hear it's making a rebound. There is no mistaking which percentage we were focused on. There wasn't the least bit uh, denying that. It was plain. Focusing on Man the Manhattan of Philadelphia. No question. And let me say this. I do not think that the church needs to apologize for reaching out to upwardly mobile young college-educated transplants with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, God help us if we apologize for that. And for all I know, at different times and places, it can be wise for the collective church to say, who are we missing here? Who's maybe like really walking away from the faith in droves? And we could just say, what if we took a concerted effort to really reach out to that population for a season to make sure that they're not missed? I can say, though, this is what I can say with confidence. As someone here from the beginning and intimately involved in planting this congregation, even though I wasn't the lead planter myself, Many of our neighbors who did not fit that description were largely not even in my heart. And that is a massive, massive problem. And 20 years later, I can tell you, that starting point dies hard. Because this church wasn't aimed at them, you would see these wise, brilliant, gifted people in our midst reasonably asking, just because they didn't go to college, and some of you are nodding right along at me who didn't go to college, uh, are we in your heart? Are we in your heart? It doesn't seem like a person like me is squarely in view in the mission of this church. And also, I don't mind saying, since this church was planted by a faithful, faithful, I think, core group that overwhelmingly identified as white, Many of our black, Hispanic, and Asian-American neighbors, as well as congregants who found themselves in our midst, have asked, does the mission of this church have me in view? And friends, I believe the unstated but functional answer was, not really. Not intentionally. No. You weren't in view. And I am sorry. One thing that I believe the congregation at large has discerned together in more recent years is that God is certainly not calling us anymore, if he ever was, to that kind of focused, limited target that we once had in view. And some of you might even wonder why we are, we've announced the last couple weeks that we're observing Black History Month. I mean, this isn't part of the church calendar, historically speaking. And it's not like I can give you chapter and verse for a reference in scripture about why you talk about Black History Month. I can tell you this, this congregation needs to. This congregation... I think we need to. I don't know about another church. I can't speak for any other church. I don't know them from the inside. I can speak for this one. I think we need to. It is an exercise in opening our eyes and opening our arms and hearing voices discuss what it's been like in the margins of our church tradition over the past couple decades. And, and I think it's a good exercise. And that's only one, one example. You know, we've talked about a lot of different people groups here. So, circling back around, closing now, what is the action Jesus calls this lawyer to? The implication is that 
anyone and everyone is this man's neighbor. This man asks a question about an object. Who's my neighbor? And actually, Jesus doesn't tell him about somebody out there. He points him back to somebody in here. He's saying basically, be a neighbor. He ends the whole parable saying, who was the neighbor? It's not about the man dead on the side of the road. It's about which of the three was the neighbor that you're called to be. The greater point is that loving this way as a neighbor is the obedience that God requires. And here's what it looks like. Make no mistake. Hands dirty, schedules interrupted, at times wallets empty, and a change in the demographic of those who sit on your couch and at your table on a Saturday night when you'd rather be elsewhere, perhaps. Who are you used to walking past and what are your good reasons? Don't thumb your nose at that Levite and priest. They had good reasons too. They just weren't good enough. And is there any reason why you would change those reasons? Finally, and and really, really more briefly, because really this parable on its face is more about how to be a neighbor. It's about action. It's about the hand stuff. Here's the hard thing. Here's the hard thing. Here's the motivation piece that I really want to send you out with as well. And without the heart piece, the hand piece is lost. I breezed over this phrase in verse 29 that kicked off the parable. It says the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, desiring to justify himself. In other words, here's what's happening. He's standing before Jesus Christ, and he says to himself, I'm going to walk away from Jesus Christ feeling really great about how I love my neighbor and being really confident that he's got nothing more to teach me about what it means to love God and neighbor now and in eternity. And the question is, do you think this man walked away justifying himself? Absolutely not. He walked away from Jesus saying, I don't know the first thing about love. And that's where it all starts. That's where we confess our sins every week. Listen, Jesus' goal in this parable is a call to action and also a call to abandon any self-confidence before God and to find confidence instead in God's mercy. If you're here today and that stings a little bit, uh, let me put it this way. Let's say that we could line up all the people of the earth in order of most socially concerned to the least. And let's say that like you're, you're at the better end. You're like one of the more socially concerned people in the world. Jesus would say, that's actually really good. This, this parable ends with a go and do likewise. Go be like the Samaritan. But even if you're among the best neighbors in this sense, Jesus would say to you, my goal for your heart is that you would walk away from me understanding that you still need more mercy than you could ever know. And if you think you're going to stand before God saying, God, you know that I've loved like I ought. You're actually really far from him. Because the heart that comes before God is one that does not say, Lord, I did it. It's the one that says, Lord, have mercy. And actually, this is the irony of the whole thing. The one who knows mercy is the one who will consistently offer it anyway. Let me end with a mental exercise, another thing I rarely do. If you want to close your eyes with me, I'm going to half close my eyes because I'm going to be reading. 
you guys want to close your eyes. I think something like this is how it works. Picture yourself half dead on a road. Imagine that you from behind have been attacked by somebody and you, your one leg is broken in like five places and your glasses are smashed and you like really need glasses to see. Blood in your eyes. And you're starting to realize that you're not breathing so well, maybe your lung is punctured. And you can't see and you can't walk and you're on the verge of death. You don't know about anybody walking by, but you can kind of hear them. And then all of a sudden, somebody stops. And they're kind. And you can feel it in their touch. And their patience. And their help. And they lift you with strong arms. And you're in and out and you black out. And you wake up. And you're stable. And you're in comfort. And there's food. And there's hope. I don't know if that did anything for you. But did you know, uniformly, all the early interpreters of the church said, Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the Samaritan in this passage. How many times, how many letters, I wonder if you can name them, does the Apostle Paul, it's at least Ephesians and Colossians, and many times he alludes in addition to those. He describes us as being dead in our sins. That means cut off from God, not even knowing how to love him until he loves first, and that's the cross. That's the cross. An atonement for sin, a clearing of a record, a covering of somebody else's righteousness that gives you a welcome you don't deserve. All the voices of shame screaming in your face, get better, love like you don't already, be good, get to the front of the line of socially concerned citizens, and instead what actually changes you is somebody just giving you this incredible hug and giving you mercy and then finding out that's starting to work something from the inside out that you didn't know how to create for yourself. That's our faith. Has that happened to you? Jesus is the great Samaritan, friends, and he leaves this lawyer going away saying, if this is loving my neighbor and loving my neighbor is between me and eternal life, who in the world is going to save me? And Jesus would say, that's exactly right. That's a very good question. I'm right here. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.